Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the official Tennis.com podcast featuring professional coach and community leader, Kamal Murray. Welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. I am your host, Kamal Murray, and we are here with probably the most famous voice in tennis. <laughs> you, and, you and Andrew Krasny. Krasny's um, amazing. Krasny's amazing. Um, the most versatile, talented, <laughs> ambidextrous, serve buck 30 on both sides, righty and lefty. Uh, I don't know how that doesn't get him to be number one in the world in singles, but we'll find out how. <laughs> um, coach of Syracuse University for seven and a half years, 1993 French Open doubles champion, uh, former world number one junior in singles and doubles in 1984. He is the definition of how to keep the game alive, stay in the game, and bring energy to the game, and bluff your way to a World Team Tennis Championship against yes. Mr. Luke Jensen. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Coach. I thought you got you got to say like, just been living on a scholarship for way too long. <laughs> you are like living on a scholarship. I mean. You are everywhere and do everything and have so much knowledge. And one of the things I love about you and your brother is that you're from the Midwest. We hear all this crap. Me, even as a coach now, I hear all this crap that you got to move to Florida, you got to move to California, got to move in Texas. And I like go down the list of all the players that grew up in either New York, Midwest, Kansas City. And like, you can make it being from here. But you know, it takes some work, right? And you got to be tough. Sure. Everybody's not tough in tennis. We got some softies, right? But you're not one of them. So tell me about growing up playing tennis and outside of Florida and California. To me, the Midwest section is the toughest section. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So tell me about growing up playing tennis in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Yeah, so we were just blessed. Number one, our life coaches, right? Our, our parents are the drivers of this bus and they have a dream to give us an opportunity. Um, And they weren't tennis players. My dad uh, was a football player. My mom was a frustrated basketball player before title nine. So there were children of parents that grew up in the great depression. So new, you know, blue collar work ethic sports really wasn't on the radar. So when my parents had uh, children, they wanted to give us an athletic opportunity wherever we wanted to go. So um, all, all four of us um, ended up playing in the Grand Slams. I, I was very blessed to play with my brother and my two sisters in mixed doubles um, in all the slams. So that was just amazing considering coming from a very small town. Grand Rapids was really kind of a tennis opportunity. I grew up on a Christmas tree farm with my siblings about an hour and a half, two hours north of that. So no indoor tennis, but tennis was booming at that time. This was like the, the mid to late seventies. It's Borg McEnroe Connors. It's uh, tennis houses like Midtown in Chicago. Who's really kind of like, like the cornerstone of everything in the North, because you had to go through Midtown to be anybody right? because you couldn't place year round, but you could at Midtown. And from Midtown, you started to see like, Detroit, Lansing in Michigan, Grand Rapids in Michigan, these tennis houses being built where guys like us could now even the score, if not do better than the Southern states, Florida, Texas, California, because we could go before school, after school, it was raining, snowing, it didn't matter, where the the kids in the South, if it rained, they were out of luck. They didn't have indoor places. So we were blessed to be in a, uh, have a couple of parents that wanted to give us the opportunity. And to be honest, because I had two sisters, my parents saw tennis as our family glue. That was a sport that kept us all together. We could go to tournaments all around the state in the section. 
where we both could play, you know, the, my sisters could play, we could play. And then family tournaments, my parents played, my grandparents played. So it was really the sport that kept us all together instead of one played football, another one played soccer, another one played something else. Yeah. So it was the one sport that brought us together and the Midwest values, in my opinion, that, that mindset to get in the cold, to get out of the van, into a tournament, into practice, really served us well when we started branching out and had to really, you know, fight for our money, fight for our living. So my wife's family is from uh, Baldwin, Michigan, which is yeah. Big Rapids. Oh, yeah. yeah. I was yeah. just in Big Rapids yeah. about 10 days ago for like three oh. days. For like a family reunion or something? Family event kind of thing. You know, the best hotel was like a two and a half star. You know what I yeah. mean? Eating at yeah. a coffee place called Big B's Coffee. Very quaint, yeah. but tough. But I mean, you know, it, it is sort of that uh, hard nose. Yeah. Not a lot of distractions, right? If yeah. you have a focus, it's a great place yeah. to like dig into yourself. Yeah. You know yeah, what I, I mean? Baldwin's a great spot. So I grew up in Ludington. Just oh. pack, keep going on the 10 yes. and you're right there. So Baldwin was a, is some really, you know, tough customers out of Baldwin. Great fishing out of there. White Cloud. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't know. See, I get around. I get around the West. I got a speeding ticket because I was, I'm working with Coco Vanderway. So during the Midland tournament, I was going between Midland and Ludington just at my parents' house. And I got a ticket like going way too fast. Baldwin police got me. It's a it's a tough corner. You didn't just pull the I'm the most famous person from that doesn't work. <laughs> Does not work. If anybody's driving through Michigan, you all are famous for giving out-of-town or speed tickets. Just FYI. That's, yeah, especially Illinois. If especially. you have an Illinois plate, you are a target. Yeah, it's like. You know, y'all are haters. Everyone from Detroit wants to be from Chicago. So you all absolutely like hold, you all hold it against us. That's right. But, so anyway, you go to you go to USC. Yep. In 86 and 87. And at that time, I always what I found was very interesting. You didn't spend that long there. Mm -hmm. And like right now, you know, if you win NCAAs, you play at UCLA, you play USC, uh, you look at Creasy and Mackie McDonald, mm -hmm. it's sort of, or even Steve Johnson, there's sort of a clear barometer for all right, I'm going to make a living playing tennis, mm -hmm. right? Because you can play 25s, 50s, 75s, all that kind of thing, right? But then it was kind of like you had to take a chance to leave mm -hmm. school early, right? And the money wasn't as great where even if I lose first round of every slam right now, you make yeah. 400 grand, right? Yeah. It's 100 yeah, grand to right. lose first round. Yeah. Back then, it wasn't that. So how did you have the balls to leave so early? <laughs> right. Again, aren't we all blessed to meet certain people in our lives? So um, I was the number one junior in the world in 84. Uh, Ed Berg had already kind of Greg Crickstein was out of that. So um, I kind of fell right behind those guys. Boris Becker just won Wimbledon, about to win Wimbledon in 85. So we were all kind of in that junior class. And Arthur Ashe was our Davis Cup captain for the United States. And so he, um, at the U.S. Open, and he goes, uh, he asks for a meeting. Arthur Ashe asked for a meeting. So I'm believe no parents, no agents, no anything. Just I get this a one-on-one -on -one with Captain Ash. It's just amazing. <laughs> and he was always really involved with all the American players, whether the top pros or the journeymen, or even especially the juniors. He'd come up to us at Wimbledon and come up to us at all the tournaments that he was at and just give us encouragement. Say, you know, I was watching you practice or watching you play. So he was very much in your kind of rotation and the way he just conducted himself, the himself, the way he spoke to you, do you just like stood at attention? You were talked into greatness and greatness was giving you this advice really kind of from God. And so when he sat down with me, I thought he was going to ask me to join the U S Davis cup team. We had, um, the uh, I think we were playing Japan or something like that. So it wasn't he didn't need McEnroe and Connors and these guys. And he had Crickstein. So I was like, I could be that that other guy. J Japan's not going to be a tough tie. And I walk in and he sits me down and he asked me if I'm going to turn pro or not. And I go, well, you know, I'm thinking about it. I've got a couple of contracts, this and that that could be on the table. And he goes uh, and I, I totally didn't know what I was walking into. And he was totally prepared. And he goes, I think you should go to college. And that was the last thing that, you know, I was like, 
I'm thinking I'm going to be on the U.S. Davis Cup team. And the <laughs> next thing I'm thinking, now I'm going to college. And he said, well, I, I went to UCLA. John McEnroe went to Stanford. Connors um, went to UCLA. Stan Smith went to USC. You need to grow up. You need to get away from home and live away from your parents, um, whether it's one year, four years, um, you know, balance a checkbook, uh, live in an apartment with a tennis guy or a non-tennis guy. And uh, just really taught me, gave me a vision to really do more than just swing forehands and backhands. And he sold it on um, how do you plan on making a living on the pro tennis tour? So I'm, I'm going to kick everybody's butt. You know, I'm, he goes, what, what, what do you, I know it's so embarrassing because I'm so cocky, right? I'm, I'm number one. You know, I'm talking to Arthur Ashe. And, uh, and he's going, uh, how much money have you made? Yeah, as an amateur, you don't make the money. You make expenses. But, right. And so uh, I, I didn't know. He goes, what's your ranking? Oh, it's 234, Captain Ash. It's, it's 234. It's like, you know, I'm playing part-time. Right. Got the junior stuff. And he's going, well, you've made 16300 He knew the number to the dollar. And he goes, that's not paying your rent. That's not paying your expenses. Go to college. Get better. Grow as a person. Because I really think overall you'll – You'll uh, you'll be better for it, and your ten. You know, I said pro. He said pro tennis was always going to be there. Um, the contracts will be there. Just keep winning, keep working hard. But my recommendation is that you go to college. He didn't tell me where to go, but that's that was really a huge kind of um, moment for me when Arthur Ashe tells you and gives you advice, you take it. Yeah. And in the end, it was the most important decision I made for myself as a person because I did everything that he said I was going to do. I was going to, you know, learn in the classroom, learn on the tennis court, because in juniors, you don't get coaching on court. As you know, as a college, fellow college player, you grow so much when that coach is sitting on your court, helping you navigate, not just how to hit tennis balls, but how to play tennis. And because I had the ability to serve both left-handed and right-handed, I was, I'm so grateful to have this uh, coach Leach, coach uh, Rick Leach's dad, Dick Leach, yeah. was really a, a tennis genius his, his IQ to see things and help me navigate, you know, in pressure situations when we played Stanford and UCLA and Pepperdine and all the big schools. And I got to sit right there with him as he told, gave me strategies that were like eight layer chess, like working with Spock on like tennis strategy. And before I just did things athletically, or I just did things, but, you know, I'd never been coached before on court until that time. And because of that, I truly be, believe I became a better tennis player on court. And then socially being in that unbelievable environment in a college setting. I, grew, I have friends today that I still stay in touch with that were athletes in other sports or just people in general that uh, if I didn't have that, I don't know the person I'd be today. So you're talking about coaching. Where did the serving with both hands Come in because I mean, look, the best, I mean, best female, best best women in the world serve sixty percent. Yep. Best men in the world are serving sixty eight percent first serve percentage, yep. and then you have the audacity to try to serve with both hands, right? Guys <laughs> are, I mean, guys are serving sixes. People top ten in the world only making sixty eight percent of first serves yep. with one hand. Where did that come from, and how did you find the time? Because I've yeah. I had an extra, right? You got four hands, backhand <laughs> serve volleys by the time you're playing indoors in michigan a serve with my left hand is extra that's not yeah, yeah. so where's right it? so uh, it, it's a long story my dad coached high school tennis they you know just like high school coaches here's a little sport on the side make a little extra dough so i grew up him coaching um high school tennis even though he was a football player and a boxer growing up so he was kind of learning the sport while I was growing up, so I got to go to all these like clinics and things like that and coaches clinics in the state of Michigan. And so watching again, back in the seventies, who's starting to dominate. Okay. Velas is in there. He's lefty labor's kind of leaving the scene. He's a lefty. Then there's this guy, John McEnroe, Jimmy Connors, and there's this Czech, um, Martina Navratilova, all these players like in the top five. And they're like the way the scoring is, Lefties have a big advantage, 15-30, 30-15, add in all the big points and add scoring tennis are in that ad side. And what do you know? 
all these lefties, even though there's not a lot of them, they seem to be winning a lot of these majors. So I grew up playing tennis right-handed because those old wood rackets were so heavy. So I throw left-handed, I kick left-footed. So uh, there was some leftiness in me. So with these major players coming through, my dad said, you know, listen, it's just like throwing a ball. Let's develop both sides, something different, something unique. And because he didn't have a traditional tennis background, and I was working with this guy, Don Dickinson, who's out in Arizona now, but he was my first real tennis coach. They had the, the vision to like, why not? Even though it's twice as much work to develop it, my game was so far behind in like the 12s and 14s that I was working on everything. So adding a lefty serve was the traditional world of tennis, the establishment saying, no, no one's ever done it. It's a waste of time. Don't do that. But because I was in, stuck in this iceberg in northern Michigan, I was working on all this stuff and it really never have to serve into the sun overheads on both sides and doubles was huge. Um, and then if I had matchup problems with, let's say someone like Agassi, I could switch it up on him a lot or Patrick McEnroe had a great backhand. I could go a certain serve. And so I had twice as many pitches as everybody else, which was a huge advantage for me. So let me ask you this then, because, you know, you watch players play on tour, right? And when that pressure hits, you can say, man, I'd love for you to serve this. Yeah. Let's just make it out the game. Serve the serve you can make. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. You know, did you switch up? Or did you, could you serve both of them well enough to make the lefty under pressure? Or on yeah. that ad side, if it's match point or your down break point, did you just go back to the righty? Like, was it, is it equal or was one like my pressure point? So very fortunate. The way the approach was when I was starting to serve left-handed was for the, I think it was the first month for sure. Every second serve had to be lefty. So I could hit a first lefty or hit a first righty, but every, at least a month, maybe two months, whether it's practice or competition, every second serve have to be lefty. And because I had that approach or my coaches installed that kind of plan, I, it became very reliable just, you know, how many double faults you got to go through and you just kind of figure it out. And it really became, so, I mean, people ask me this, who I played against, what was your most effective <clears throat> serve? And it's funny talking to the Woodies or talking to the guys I played against because they thought I had certain serves that I favored and everyone had different ones, but the one that was always my most reliable, my go-to was my lefty kick in the tee to a righty with those big Western forehand grips, I could kick it up on them pretty high. Mm. And if there's one serve that I knew for life or death, that that could be the one. But they were both, I mean, they're both as fast in the 130s, uh, but in doubles, you never serve the, you never red line. You want that first serve percentage. So I was, you know, in the 120s consistently with both of them, could kick both of them. They were really, when I was 100% healthy before I found pizza, <laughs> and everything. I could, uh, I could, they're exactly the same. I never felt one was better than the other under pressure. Got it. That's interesting. Cause it, and it's interesting to serve a lefty serve to the ad side to a righty's forehand. Right. Oh, yeah. That's almost like, yeah. why bother? Right. It's yeah. Like, yeah. I, it makes sense. Right. It's like, damn, I mean, that's kind of weird. Yeah. Um, Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. So... One of the things that, you know, I try to explain to people is how different it is singles and doubles. Mm -hmm. And when you look at, like, best doubles players mm -hmm. in history, you look at Brian Brothers, yep. you look at the Jensen Brothers, mm -hmm. and you look at you were six in the world in dubs mm -hmm. and career high 163 in the world in singles. Mm -hmm. yep. Somebody can look at that and say, well, that's a big difference. Yeah, I, I mean, if he's six in the world in doubles, maybe he should be 30 in the world in singles. Mm -hmm. explain to the common folks how big of a gap it is and why you think there was such a, a disparity between the singles ranking and doubles ranking. Yeah. I mean, it was real easy. So I turned pro in the fall of 87. 
out of USC after my sophomore year. And um, I start working on my ranking. I mean, it was, I'd lost some points because going to college, you're not playing as many tournaments as I was pro tournaments as I was in the juniors. And um, so it, it really dropped a bunch. And so I started traveling to Europe, going to South Africa to play, you know, you find those points where the weakest tournaments staying in the States was not smart. So within the first, I think three or four months at the, by the end of 87, I got to about 160, 160s, 168 in singles, 163 in doubles. I was like right in there. Somewhere, both of those rankings kind of came up at the same time playing those minor league tournaments. So now I'm going into 88, and I, I just want to continue the same thing because the money's in singles. So in that 88 year, my doubles, I, I win a couple of tournaments in dubs. Singles doesn't really play out. And then, as you know, the gold standard to a professional tennis player, the money's great, obviously, but it's the points. And that 12 month, you're always defending, right? You're always defending. And so I, I started to peel off those points. I won in 87 in the fall started really coming up real fast. And my singles wasn't really winning. I had those like the sophomore freshman blues. Everybody got knew the lefty righty guy and stuff like that. But in doubles, <laughs> I kept winning matches. So going into 89, now my my doubles is top 100. Okay, do you want to make money, stay in nice hotels, play the major tournaments, which would be you're just playing doubles, or singles, you go back to the minor leagues and grind it out for another, what, one year, two years, with no guarantee you're making money. So um, it was a big thing on my mind because I wanted to start making money. And my parents had three other kids they were putting through juniors and college and everything. And so uh, who wanted to be pro tennis players? So my number one thing was as soon as I could get a paycheck, the biggest paycheck, I was I was doing that. So I tried to play this game, doubles main draw, and then qualifying at these Memphis and Philly and majors. But I, I couldn't I couldn't bridge that gap. I couldn't I couldn't really jump it. I, I did well. I had some wins. I beat Agassi in Memphis in '96. Pride check in '96. He uh, he won Wimbledon. I, I almost got him lost to like breaker in the third or something like that. But um, for the most part, doubles was paying the bills. And that's where I kind of separated from there. Whereas you have to commit one or the other. Mm. And um, to me, and then when Murphy got on and we start doing well, that was, uh, that was really our, our gravy train. Mm. So Tim, speaking of Murph, tell me about that 1993 French open. Oh, now that's classic. Yeah. Classic. It, Right. It's I mean, amazing. the stuff that happens off the court, right. During a, during a slam run. Yeah. And the things that almost go wrong that don't go wrong yeah. during a slam run. Yeah. It's just like, sort of like in the, this, these, the tennis graveyard untold stories. Tell us about yeah. that. So I want to ask you, so it's the same thing. When you go back to the year you got Sloan to cross the finish line and win the U S open, do you still have dreams about that, that you're oh. still in that battle? Because I do about 93. I, I will wake up and I'm like, we're still in the tournament. And we're like, it is this real? Did it really happen? Because yeah. that that two weeks, as you know, every match and the day between and how you prepare and looking back is just it's a miracle. Like, it's how a miracle. did I get here? It's it's a miracle. I mean, I think of so I think of 2017. 900 in the world. Yep. Couple good tournament, good tournament in Montreal or Toronto. I'm sorry. Good tournament in Toronto, good tournament in Cincy. Going to the US Open. Six of the seven matches she played were against the seed. Yeah. yeah the only yeah, unseeded yeah. player she played was in the first round with Berta Benchy. Yeah. Yeah. Last year, right? Yeah. US Open. Yeah. And Roberta Benchy will just chop you up, right? Yeah. yeah. People think the backhand's weak, but oh. for a woman, who likes a straightforward match? Mm -hmm. I'd rather just play her forehand. Absolutely. She's not going to slice and dice and drop you. She's not going to be as creative off that side. Let's just feed her forehands. Yeah. Right. So first set, first round. We're playing a forehand. It sounds like you know, seven six. Like it's not yeah, like yeah. this. This is like hard. I'm yeah. like, yeah, it's hard. But we went. We won that set. Had you yeah. played her backhand, she'd have chipped you here, chipped right. you there, dropped you. I was like, trust me, that's it. 
then you play then you play Sibakova and Sibakova. Mm-hmm. It was like literally six four in the third on like court twelve. Yep. And that probably was in every slam run. There's a match you should have lost. Right. Right. That was a match we should have lost. Let me tell you, I know. The match is over. Sloan wins. Walking from court twelve, maybe it was like court eight, past the bar yeah. where they're serving the honey deuces. Right. Of course. Yeah. The honey. Sibakova's yeah. husband team. Don't even go to the locker room. They don't go to the stretch room. They stop and have a drink. Oh. And I walked past them and they said, that was a good match. You need to have a drink with us. And I, I did the same thing. So I stopped and I had a drink with them. Oh, and so then she was, she was in the room on the bike. She's like, where were you? And I was like, sorry, I had to have a drink. <laughs> I was like. <laughs> so good. I mean, you're thinking like those matches and like, Trying not to get food poisoning in yep, New York. Yep. Trying not, but I mean, I I didn't sleep the whole two yeah. weeks. That's amazing. You know, I didn't sleep because you're trying not to mess it up, right? You're like, yeah, right, yeah. On a run, let me watch 30 more minutes of YouTube. Let uh-huh. me look at these stats for one more hour before you know it. I mean, literally, I remember, I remember Sven, right? So Sharapova had to play a match. Sharapova played a match. We played a match at the same time. So we're in the yeah. gym on the fourth floor. Warming yep. up. And I was like, uh, I said, hey, good luck, Sven. And then uh, he was like, we don't need luck, you do. <laughs> and then she ended up losing that match. I remember that. And she ended up losing, Sharapova ended up losing, because that was Sloan's next match. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it was like, I don't, we don't want to play Sharapova, right? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So Sharapova ended up losing that match. And I was like, thank God. But I was, I remember like being in the shower on many nights and uh, sitting on the floor of the shower. Because again, I didn't play, you know, pro tennis. Yeah, so yeah. I'm definitely like batting above my weight class yeah, at the yeah, time, right? You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, and I think I yeah. knew I was doing as a great statistician. She yeah. and I had great chemistry, but it was like, man, like we're like fucking in the yeah. corner of the slam. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. We're we're yeah. like everyone's going home and we're like the only ones here. So I definitely was getting the like, whoa, what's happening? Let me just yeah. lock in, right? You know what I yeah. mean? Um, and then like I had this sweatshirt that I wore for the whole two weeks and it stunk oh. so bad. It stunk <laughs> you can't. Can't you wash gotta it. wear it. You can't wash it. Can't wash it. No. You can't wash it, right? No, no, no. Um, so tell me about 93. Yeah, I know so, story. Same thing. So uh Murphy and I started play in 93 as pros. He's two and a half years younger. He stayed uh three years longer in school while I was out there just working on my ranking and, and doing the pro thing. And so when he turned pro in 90 he had to go through the minor leagues too. So he's playing in all these small places and I'd I'd join him from time to time, but I was top 10 at the time with another guy, this guy, Lori Warder from Australia. And uh, after 92, uh, Lori and I split up because Murphy and I always had a dream to to play on the tour together. And this was our moment. He had kind of, I think he was in the top hundred at that point in doubles. And uh, so we could get into most of the tournaments and we start out and we did okay. We got the semis of Sydney, I think first or second round of the Australian doing okay, but not, no real breakthroughs. So going, uh, we got going into the clay court season, we got into this like losing streak and uh, it came down to uh, Hamburg and we lost eight tournaments in a row first round. And I got points coming off all over. Uh, I've got finals of Rome, one in Bologna quarters of the, you know, so as you know, you start adding up those chips that are both about to fall off like dominoes and Mer- we'd lost every ma- all these matches, eight matches. And that's a long time yeah. to just go over and three sets up match points and Oh, and Oh, all different ways. And we just couldn't figure it out. And after the match, we just stayed on the court. We we're the last match on field court. And he's going, listen, I don't want to ruin your career. If, 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 you know, you're about to lose all these points, it's not working out. And it was one of those moments where I was the big brother. And I said, Murphy, we're going to do this. I don't care if we're back playing the satellites and the futures. I don't care where we are in South America and we've got to figure it out, but we're going to do it. I believe in you. We've always had this dream to do it. And it kind of gave him kind of the, the wind in the sail that he needs the, to really keep going because he had never been at this level before. He'd played you know, college and juniors and small pro stuff, but this is the big boy stuff. And um, so the next week uh, we get to the semis of Rome finals of Bologna, which is a warm-up tournament for the French. And then uh, we get to the French and uh, 
because we did well the, the um, week before the, uh, you know, it's like a Sunday before they played the French that first day on Sunday. So nobody was around real quiet. And we're sitting there and I said to Murphy, you know, we could win this tournament. We can win it. Like you, you know, six, four, big, tall, lefty, big serve. We can hold serve. We're, you know, we got something here. And he looks at me, he goes, what are you talking about? I've never even been to Paris. And, uh, and so I said to him, the, uh, you, you just have to just, just have so much fun with this because through everything, like we shouldn't even be here. Like we're not seated. And we, we just came off of this losing streak. We got a little something going and he just thought I was out of my mind. So uh, we get to the first round the next day and we're down match points. Guy serves to me. I hit a return. I break a string. So the guys like wisely volleys back to me and you make a choice, right? When you break a string, do I throw up a high defensive lob? They were both at the net. So I just couldn't run to the net. So he volleys back to me and I just threw it. I'm just going to go for it. And it goes in and we win the point. And so it's like, but we end up winning that match 12, 10 in the third, the second round we're down match points. We win 12, 10 in the third. Third round, we're down 5-3 in the third. Murphy and I are fighting against each other on the court, and rain comes. The tennis gods give us a little break. Well, I know. They pull the, they pull the covers. It's going to be fast. I get on the phone with our United Airlines because I know this match is going to be over in like 40 minutes. I can be at the airport, Charles de Gaulle, on a plane back to the States. And all of a sudden, there's this tug on my, on my jacket. And it's our mom, six foot two, not messing our mama bear, right? She's pissed. She's got Murphy six foot four in one hand. She got me by the collar in the other hand. And she's banging our heads together, work together, just shut up and play, you know, doing what mama bear does. So we get out there, we end up winning seven, five and a third. So now we're in the quarters and we got to play LeConte and, uh, and even Isovich. Even this huge lefty serve, LeConte, this French guy, loved the crowd and everything. So um, we're in the you know second week, and this I didn't know which player it was, but someone said if you guys win this thing, you got to have a celebration. You got to you know Borg goes to his knees, Pat Cash goes up to the crowd into the right. players box. You got to do something. And I, for whatever reason, I just said, remember this is the like middle Saturday or Sunday. I said if we win this thing. I'm going to body slam Murphy to the ground, like big time wrestling. And it'll be the greatest celebration of all time. And everyone's like joking about it. Yeah. Give me a break there. You know, there's, we still have three matches. There's no way we're supposed to win this or are going to win this thing. So we get out there and we're playing on the old bull ring at the uh, court one. Yeah, court old one. fans are right on top of you. It's no longer there, but it was a great place to play. And uh, the fans are all French and they're bananas. And every time LeConte would hit the ball, the fans would go, yay. And when Murphy and I would hit the ball, they'd go, boo, yay, boo. The whole five minute, it's just the warm up. So uh, we end up losing, uh, I think the, the first set, end up coming back tiebreaker and then winning in the third. So another match, we probably should have lost. Now we get to the semis. And it was the only time we won in straight sets. We be we beat Corda, Peter Corda, and um, and Stefan Edberg. So another the quality wins in there, but not really like doubles guys. Edberg was the last guy to be number one in singles and doubles since like McEnroe. So you know, like he could play, but those guys, you know, it's like playing doubles guys, and we're hyping up like college right, players. Right, right. We're in the semis of the French. We're winning this thing. We're on we're on uh, center court and uh, Chatrier. So now we're in the finals and it's unbelievable. I mean, it's, as you know, that locker room is a quiet place from two weeks before and every bag and every coach and every parent, it's like you're climbing over humanity and all this stuff to it's just you and just them. And we didn't have a coach and they had a coach. We played these two German guys who were also unseated, but they beat the Woodies. They beat all these seated guys. And we kind of navigated through some singles guys and stuff. And uh, so it was, could have been a first round match. Instead, it's two unseated teams. We're sitting in the locker room waiting for 
uh, Steffi Graf was playing Mary Jo Fernandez. So we're just waiting it out. And it's, as you know, it's the worst. Just give me a time. Is it noon? Is it three? Because you don't know when to, you know, warm up. When do I right. eat? Now it goes three sets. Got to eat again. Got to warm up again. So these two German guys and their coach who's German speak perfect English. And as we're sitting there waiting for this match to end, Johnny Mack comes through. He's not calling the women's final. He's calling our final on NBC with Bud Collins. Now, I knew Johnny Mack forever because I played doubles in the juniors with Patrick. And then when I was at USC, I used to practice with John when he lived in Malibu. And then in 91 and 92, the two years prior, I was on the Davis Cup team as a hitting partner, hanging out with those guys. So I knew John really well. Murphy didn't know him that well. And, and John comes in because he, you know how much he loves to practice. Mm-hmm. He goes in before he's always hitting balls. So he's, he's coming through the locker room about to go practice and he stops and he goes, he gives us one of these like general patent speeches. I want you to take these guys back to the beaches of Normandy. <laughs> now it's the four, it's the day before the 49th anniversary of D-Day. And it's a big deal in France, you know, like France right. was liberated and all this stuff. So he starts going, and I want you to take them back there and kick their ass. And this whole like huge, like motivational speech. And the whole time I'm thinking these Germans, I mean, they're 10 feet away. Right. Perfect English. They weren't even alive for right. D-Day. And McEnroe just going off. Murphy is going, why is John McEnroe yelling at me? Right. And, it, and so then as, as soon as he got in there and like yelled at us, he left. And we're like, what just happened? But it took the edge off. Like we were more like concerned with what the hell John McEnroe just right. said. <laughs> then, oh, we got to go out. But I do remember specifically that I never thought I ever had to win a tennis match. My parents were just awesome with all of us because it was always based on effort and enthusiasm, like go out and have, I don't care if you lose Ono, if you come off and your knees are bloody from diving on the court, you know, I'm going to give you a big giant squeeze, one of our hugs and we'll go grab some ice cream. We're going to have a fun time, but you could win Ono, but if you're distracted acting like a knucklehead, they would light us up. They would just rip us. So I never felt I had to win a match until then because Mm. I thought, you know what? I may never get here again. This, this is our moment. And I didn't say that to Murphy. I mean, he was total rookie and didn't know really anything, but I could serve big and go for winners. And uh, so I remember specifically like, this is our moment right right now because it may not happen again. So we get out there, we win the first set, lose the second in the tiebreaker and Murphy's distraught. He's like, dude, I I'm so sorry. He's so sorry because he felt he let me down. I said, Murphy, we, we've, we've been match points down this whole turn. We shouldn't even be here. And uh, so we get down 01, 02, 03 in the third. Now I'm serving, which is the most important moment of my life because I know we dropped that serve. Done. We're done, double break. So I just remember specifically still to this day, like waking up in the middle of the night, like I'm thinking about that game hold that game for serve percentage, make the volley, just real basic. They can beat us, but I can't fumble right now. Right. We go to three, one, three, two, we break. So now we get like some momentum going and uh, we get to a point where now Murphy's serving five, four for the match serving for the championship. Little brother. And yeah. Yeah. So big serve 15 love, big serve overhead, 30 love. So as you know, in doubles, we huddle together, servers, the quarterback, server says, sets up the point. Okay, I'm going to serve here. You you fake, you cross. So our entire lives playing together, we huddle up and it's just business. Serve and what the net player's play is. And Murphy says, whatever you do, don't hurt me. (laughs) And I go, what are you talking about? And I can see it on tape. It's, It's unbelievable. Whatever you do, don't be stupid and and hurt me. And I go, Murphy, we haven't won anything yet. We're zero. And uh, double faults, gets a little tight, bricks a volley. So now I know, listen, I've got to cross. I don't care. Like, if he gets that servant, I got to take off. Going. Going. So he gets the servant at deuce. I take off. And 
the guy, this Golner, couldn't believe his luck. Like both Murphy and I were on one side of the court because I left so early. He flags it and shanks it. Match point. So now we have match point. Murphy tells me where, where he's going. He gets his first serve and I reach, I just take off, but I can't get to it. And now I'm kind of out of position. Murphy makes the volley. I shuffle back into position and they lob over Murphy. So I'm kind of setting up to get ready for him to smash the overhead. And all of a sudden he goes, yours. <laughs> and I'm like, yours. So I'm like scrambling. And so at this point, I'm not going to miss. I may lose the point. I may lose the day. But I'm not going to be guy live the rest of my life as I missed an easy overhead on match point at a major. So right. I put it right down the middle. They put another one up over Murphy. He says yours. I get a knock it down the middle. And then Prentissel tries to rip a really, he went into a brain cramp because he rips a forehand from deep behind the baseline. He misses. We win. Unbelievable. We, we just win the major. I go down in like in a like a uh in, in a, like a crouching position and i go to hug murph well he's six four he's coming down to get me as i come up out of this squat i clock him with a forearm and you see it on the film and his i break his jaw no i break hand to god i break his jaw and he like now he can't feel his face probably a concussion but he he's like he can't feel anything and all of a sudden we're just around the service line, the German guys, our opponents are walking up to the net to shake hands. Fans are going crazy. And Murphy's yelling every bad word you can imagine. <laughs> da, 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 da. I told you not to hurt me. You say He thought he was bleeding, but he couldn't feel anything. So that you could see it on tape. The German guys looking at us go, what is wrong with these two guys? <laughs> We're the ones who lost. And so Murphy's so pissed off at me. Rah, 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 rah. He grabs his bags and starts walking off the court. The tournament director says, Monsieur Murphy, Monsieur Murphy. He's like, what? You must pick up the trophy. So he slams his bags down. And back, back in the day, he used to have to climb these stairs to the president's box and everything. So it's red carpet. So he walks like he's the singles player. I'm with the two German guys who just lost. So he walks up there, grabs the trophy. Now, in every doubles championship in the history of tennis, there's a beautiful picture. One guy's on one side, the other player's on the other, partner's on the other side, and they hold it up, and it's a great moment. Murphy takes our trophy, holds it up in the air like he just won the singles, and I'm, I've got three fingers on the trophy. I'm on my tippy toes, and that's all I got. I do. That's the only time I get to touch that trophy because he was so mad at me. I've <laughs> taken this thing, and uh, that was our. That's our French Open story. Oh man, let me tell you that place. That place. I mean, we talk about the French Open in Paris, right? Roland yep. Garros in Paris. I remember 2018. You get to the finals. Yep. And we leave the stadium, and all of a sudden, the police are following us. I'm like, I mean, what, what, did we do something? I mean, what's going yeah. on? Yeah. So they followed us all the way to the hotel. No one told us that the two finalists get security between the oh. between the finals, I mean, between the semis and the finals. Yeah. So now we got security following us all the way home. Oh. They're, getting accident. They're cutting us off. I'm like, are they chasing us? Or are they like, you know, trying to protect yeah. us? They get to the hotel, like, oh, we're going to be here the whole time. So then they come into the hotel. All right, all right now we got it. So they come into the hotel. One yeah. guy's outside the hotel. One guy sitting on our floor, just leaning against the wall all night. So, you know, me and Sloan, this is during the 2018 French Open, me and Sloan never went to dinner. Not one night. So, like, just, just, just room service, just room service. No, she would go without me. So, no, her, 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 go without me. so I think we went there one night to get some free yeah. barbecue. Yeah, yeah. And after that, it was her and her mom and her friend. They literally, we did not go to dinner. We went to practice, <laughs> yeah. went to matches, came back, she did her own thing. I would eat and I would go to Miss Cole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Miss Cole, like almost every night, got me a little drink, everything. Yeah, yeah. And I leave out. So, you know, I leave out about 11 o'clock, can't sleep because, you know, you're up still doing business yeah. in the state. Yeah. And I go, he said, Sir, where are you going? I said, I'm going yeah. to have a drink. Yeah. He's like, You can't do that. I'm like, I'm not going to be able to sleep if I don't have a drink. <laughs> I said, Yeah, yeah. 
you know what I'm dealing with in the other room? Come on, I gotta <laughs> have a drink, right? Yeah, yeah. He's like, oh, sir, I need to come with you. I said, okay, well, come on. You know, so yeah, he yeah, follows yeah. me down there, stands on the corner where Miss Cohen is. It was like, what is going on? But I mean, that oh. is just a classic venue. And that was the last women's match played on Chartier before That's, they- Yeah, 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 yeah. So did it make you more nervous having those guys? Because that would kind of freak me out. You know, when it, when it was like, wow, this is a whole business, right? Nothing is going to happen to these two players. Oh, yeah. Now in the final. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. There's money, there's history, there's that. But Danger. How crazy the country is over tennis. Yeah. When they yeah. would, like, come to the hotel or follow a player or kidnap a player. I'm like, oh, shit. Yeah. like, yeah. should we be concerned kind of thing? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. That was like, whoa, okay, let's kind of, like, get this right. But... You know, I, it was it was kind of cool. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like to feel like in this country, yeah, at this moment, yeah, you know, this player is yeah. so important to yeah. what's about to happen here. So yeah. it was uh, it, it was French Open is like a, a an event like no other. Oh yeah, no, it's unbelievable. I mean, yeah. cold rain. So, so what were the? So tell me about the difference because we talked about the high of winning a U.S. Open. No one ever really talks about your seat. Being in that that situation where now your player just lost, and you got to pick up the pieces because I mean you're you're right there, right? Yeah. Let's talk talk about that because I think so, that is so interesting. So you know I think a, a good coach always tries to take blame, mm -hmm. and you start to think about, you know, did I did something I missed? Mm -hmm. I should have said something. So you know we were up a set in two zero, right? And so you're kind of sitting there. You don't try to like overreact because you don't want the player to panic. But then if you lose that match, you say, I should have got up and walked out. You know, I should have yeah. did something to change the energy. Or yeah. I should have, maybe I should have yelled something. Maybe I should have said this. Maybe I should have given a signal and just, mm -hmm. and just took the penalty. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Maybe if I yeah. had said this at like 2-0-45, I mean, yeah, I would have got a, a warning, but we would have yeah. won the game. You know what I mean? Right. So you start right. to think about everything you did wrong or yeah. everything you thought to say, but didn't say. Because right, it's, right. it's like, there's 10 things I could say, yeah. right? About this match and about what yeah. we should be doing. And you got to choose three or four. Yeah, yeah. The most important things. And then you just hope that the thing you don't, that to choose to leave out, mm -hmm. that you think that they'll figure out, they'll figure that out on their own. I don't need to say it. It doesn't come back to mind. So I think that was, it was a low moment for me because I took a lot of responsibility Mm -hmm. In terms of, I could see the energy going the other way, mm -hmm. right? I mean, because I think that year, Halle must have bought 2,000 tickets. It was so oh. many Romanians. I mean, I was yeah, like, yeah. where did all these Romanians <laughs> come from? Right. I'm like, what the yeah, hell? I'm like, yeah. there's no way that there's this many, right? There's yeah, no yeah. way, right, yeah. that they managed to get tickets. Yeah, yeah. So I felt like I probably could have done something more dramatic. Like mm. walk out, like I'm so pissed off, I'm gonna walk out the stadium. Yeah, and then she's yeah. like, I can't believe you left. You know what I mean? It, yeah, yeah, yeah. Think about that. So I think that was it. But then you gotta like recover. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? So and and I don't think we recovered that well. I went to you know Wimbledon, lost first mm -hmm. round, mm -hmm. uh, didn't do anything city open, mm -hmm. and then got it back together, kind of um, you know, US open quarters, year end championship mm -hmm. kind of thing. So I think we kind of got it back together. Yeah, but it was it was a hard one, you know what I mean? Because yeah. the thing with tennis, you win one slam, people say, oh, that was a fluke. Yeah. Oh, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. They yeah. got lucky, right? Yeah. Yeah. You win two on two different surfaces, it's kind of like, okay, yeah. that person is going to go to the Hall of Fame, right? And you, yeah, yeah. you right. try to help. Right, yeah. You yeah. want to try to help oh. that player sort of get yeah. that. So that's hard. And I think that the lowest point was between, after US Open 2017, Sloan lost 10 matches in a row. Oh yeah. Right. Remember yeah. that right before Miami? Lost uh -huh. in the road and she comes back with Miami and that kind of led us to the French Open. I mean, mm -hmm. that's low because then you yeah. start to get all the betters who are sending yeah, death, yeah. death threats on Instagram. That's unbe it's unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. You suck as a coach. You yeah, should yeah. kill yourself. You should kill yeah. her. I mean, it was like, bro, it's just a tennis yeah. match, right? That kind of thing, right? Then you start to question yeah. yourself as a coach because now, now the, course, the, yeah. the family are like, oh, maybe you need to switch coaches. You know, maybe the media, maybe they need to switch coaches. Maybe yeah, she yeah. needs a new voice. Maybe that. And it's just like, no, we yeah. just the, the the little the hiccup, right? Yeah. Like hangover. 
They're right, you know, right. Grand yeah. hangover kind of thing, right? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. But luckily, between I would say U.S. Open and you know Miami, stuck with the program. Eventually, we yeah. figured it out, and then ended up being number three in the world the next year. But yeah. if you panic after that, oh yeah, maybe twenty eighteen doesn't happen. So I think that that was sort of the low, the low mm-hmm. for me. It's like, damn, I we were so close. I should have yeah. said this. Yeah. I knew that was gonna happen. I should have said this, or I should have walked out and like made a scene or something made a scene you know what i mean you know so people don't understand they say oh you know you can coach now on the tours like you don't understand you're you know it's one thing when you're in a player's box in a big court but you're on the side courts like you have a couple of words at the most and you don't want the other side to hear it so they're not that close to you yeah so like you said you like i you gotta pick your phrases and your timing has to be spot on yeah so you coached at Syracuse, you coach women, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the things like you hear on tour, you hear the guys, coaches, the, the, the guy, people who coach guys sort of laugh at the coaches that coach girls. They're like, hey, yeah, yeah. we coach tennis and you guys coach emotions. Yeah. How was your experience coaching Syracuse women for seven and a half years? No, what's great is that I got to recruit the players. So if anything went south, it was on me. I didn't do enough homework and recruit the right player because we're in a snow belt. I mean, I used to have recruiting trips. They'd come in February because I really wanted, whether they came from, especially Florida or California, Texas, like, okay, if you're really interested here, this is what you're living. It's not August. This is February in Syracuse, New York. And the university turns the heat off when we practice to save money. Like you can see your breath indoors if you want to come here, you, you got to be a certain type of caliber of kid mm-hmm. that is tough. That is different. We made them serve in volley first and mm-hmm. second serve. So I was blessed because I love the recruiting aspect. I take two years on each kid to really kind of, is this the right kid that can fit in and, and prosper and do well. The mm-hmm. academics too, we had a great athletic department that helped these kids succeed academically. Mm-hmm. So when they were, doing well in the classroom, they always had great practices. Mm-hmm. When they weren't doing well in school or they're behind with papers or a test they weren't prepared for, they always tanked out. So mm-hmm. I think the best thing I did, I just said, empowered them. Hey, if you need the day, if you need the week, take it off, get you, get this right, and then come back. Mm-hmm. Because we, we were, at that point, we weren't in the ACC, we're in the Big East. So we weren't playing like heavyweights all the time. Mm-hmm. So in po- giving those young adults the empowerment, so listen, coach, have the trust. Hey, you need it, take it. But when you come on the court, I need your 100%, you know, two or three hours. And I really got the most out of them. And I didn't look at them as men or women. I grew up in a situation, my mom was a gymnastics coach as a phys ed teacher. So I grew up learning about the work ethic that women go through, especially young gymnasts, that that sports brutal gymnastics. And so mm-hmm. I really have a lot of respect. My mom was a very towering, um, passionate, powerful person, personality. So I respected women and what they go through to, to be elite athletes. So I really enjoyed the experience. And to this day, I mean, I've got a couple of players where I'm the godparent of their kids, mm. um, their doctors and lawyers that see them graduate where they were just a, a, a freshman that didn't know anything. And now they've graduated and they're, they're getting their diploma. It's, it's unbelievable to see them grow. Now the same thing, you know, when you see kids thrive in your system, that's the win, not mm. the grand slam title or anything. It's that mm. they're winning in life and they're happy. And if you make them happy, you know, they can do anything. Now you've been very generous with your time, but I cannot let you go without talking about Greenbrier World Team. <laughs> and, and I'll be honest with you, you know, because talk about probably the most insecure, like sort of moment on tour for me was, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't play on tour. I never won. I didn't win a 93 French Open, you know, so you get to World Team Tennis and you got John Lloyd. Mm-hmm. JL, mm-hmm. yourself, mm-hmm. and all these coaches that played on tour, right? Mm-hmm. And now it's like, now we got to coach a team against each other. Yeah. So now I got it. That was my first year coaching team tennis. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> and we get to the final. And we had you all beat. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. God, it was done. It was mm-hmm. done. I think we, we yeah. got a little bit, we got a little tight yeah. at the end. Uh, what, did, what were you thinking? Because y'all were done. And then yeah. you start your wooden racket, the hat, <laughs> slapping five. You told you started totally bluffing your team yeah. into believing that you all could come back. Yeah. What were you yeah. thinking during that time? You know what? Well, first, I remember our first coaches meeting. Remember coaches only that we had in that indoor place? Yes. And I'm telling you, we all had our questions and things about, you know, the league and COVID. We, we had all these restrictions, right, with the bubbles and practices and stuff. But you know, I, I really want to stress to you is that how all of us so respect you and the way you communicate with your players. I mean, you'd already won your slam and Sloan was, you know, obviously so gifted and talented, but also respected. This is all, you guys earn that respect. Just because we played doesn't mean you're going to be a great coach or a great communicator. If, if To be a great coach, you're a great listener. You know exactly to say the right things. And the other thing is you take responsibility. A lot of coaches like, listen, screw you, the player, you, you know, you screwed it up. But you said it earlier, you put a lot of that stuff on you that allows the player who's already hurting already to like, okay, it's not as bad as you know losing this or losing that and and so sitting in there you were a giant with us you were a huge part of the success of world team tennis that season and it proved your your team played great to get there um and the manager's personalities Woo. i mean that's <laughs> what i mean and all the stories in the back like that's a rea- if world team tennis did a reality tv thing on that that would have sold the netflix forget oh, netflix what they're doing came that year that was great. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, it's, it's, let's start with that. Just how much we all truly respect you and your wisdom in the game and how much you give to the game and, um, and you make a difference. And so when we, we played my, my feeling always was with that whole team, because when you're playing with, when you're coaching pros, it's so different from college where you have control of the scholarship and you recruit them you know, you pay these players way more than you're getting paid and they're kind of running the show. And so how do you kind of navigate that where it's not an exhibition, but we're playing for a lot of money. And so I just call this always like team. Awesome. We're going to have more fun than everybody else. I don't care if we lose, we win. I just want the other side to know and the fans to know we have more fun than ever, more high fives than everybody. We're smiling. I got the wood racket and all this stuff. And so when we got to that final, I just thought it was amazing because it was the women's doubles that you you pulled out that you wanted to finish strong. And you felt most confident with your women's doubles. That was your call in the lineup, and I felt really good with Vanderway and and uh, Melikar and Melikar Nicole Melikar because I mean the, two powerful players. They had to come back. I mean, there was a lot of stuff going on. And I just wanted them smiling, having fun in that weird format. Anything can happen. Anybody can get a little tight. And um, it, it was, I thought Jeannie got a little tight, you know, and all of a sudden you made the move by throwing Sloan in there. And I, I thought I was, when it got to the tiebreaker and I, I knew that our time on TV was going into like this golf. It was like oh, yeah. one 1.4, 1.5 million people were watching this and it was women's tennis. And it was the, I didn't see anybody like make airs. Yeah. Everybody was hitting. I mean, Sloan came in winner, winner, ace, vol. I was like, holy, I mean, it was, it was the best tennis at the right time. And I was just so amazed. And so Sloan goes um, at, uh, with that ace at six all. Yeah, six, five all or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. Boom. Ace to the T. And so, you know, as you know, I love that format for that because of COVID no ball kits. So being on the court, I love that we could get the ball form that little mini huddle that we all have. I love that because it really shows a different side of tennis that normally you don't see. You can really help that player navigate the, the moment, the situation. And Coco was, I want it. You know, when, when a player has that Michael Jordan, nobody else is getting the ball. Nobody else is taking the shot. 
I'm taking the shot. And that's who you want. So you have Sloan, who's a Grand Slam champion. Bethany Maddox-Sands, who's a Grand Slam champion. Nicole Melikar is a Grand Slam champion. And Coco Vanderway is a Grand Slam champion. Says, I'm, I'm taking it. Not I want, you know, usually going, who wants it? No, there was no doubt. And so it's like, as you know, you just back off. You want it, you take the shot. And it was just, to me, just hyping everybody up. Like, it is magical to come down to one deciding point. Never happened in tennis history. So much on the line. And you got your player wants it. No matter what, you ride with that player. And uh, I call her Clutch because of that. That's her nickname I, I've given her. A Clutch Vanderway. And slow, And she's, she told me she felt that someone was going to go, go, go right back there. Right <laughs> where she ate that ace. Right down that tee. And she sat on it. And she knew Bethany was going to cross. You know, as a, a doubles player, you're always going to nibble. You're going to nibble a little <laughs> bit. And she just rifled it. Just rifled it down the line. And... It was the only time I'll never forget this because it was that that hesitation on that call with the Hawkeye. And I was like, yeah. oh, my God, it's the only time this thing is going to glitch. Did someone turn the power <laughs> off or or something? And, you know, it was it was a micromillimeter or whatever. A human eye would have called it out. If it was a 100%. human out there, you got. Yeah, you got. Yeah. And that was 100 grand. That was a lot of money. I was Darn right. That was probably the. If anyone listens to this podcast and you did not see that, I would go yep. to YouTube yep. and watch that tiebreaker. Mm -hmm. That was probably the best mm -hmm. world team tennis moment. Yeah. I mean, evident of the viewership. I mean, so many people that I know don't watch tennis yeah. have to be tuned in for the golf yeah. and end up watching tennis. It was so great. And I so would say, great. as a coach, I always think about, should I left Jeannie in and maybe she would have figured it out I was like, eh. no, no, no. You gave her, you have to pull it. That's, that's yeah. your job. That's what Gotta I mean. You could, if you don't, if you don't put in Sloan, that is We're your done. player. You're yeah. done. You're and done. remember, if you remember, I always, I've learned this through, especially in college that you got to put in the best player. Yeah. You know, what, you know, what singles, doubles, whatever. And so when I see, um, if you remember the very first, the, you had us playing mixed first and Jack had played, Jack got us in that position. He played three sets every single match that second week just to get us in there. And then we had this trade to get Melikar and Vanderway. Yeah. And so in the mix, because Jack had played so much, I had um, I didn't have him in the mix. So I just thought, Neil Skupski, you know, you're going to play. And then give Jack just two sets. Give me whatever you got, whatever you got. And it was a little overcast at the beginning of that match. So Jack comes to me and says, if you want me to play, I can play. So I, I substitute. If you remember that, I, I pulled, pulled uh, Neil out of there, put Jack in. And, like, I always feel you got to play your best player. And I felt you did the right thing because Sloan was chomping at the bit. Oh, she Sloan was, was like, get me, get me in there. Get me in. Like, she was, like, going nuts. And, you know, again, you're watching the other side. I'm watching this. Like, please don't put her in there. Please oh, don't put in Sloan. To make three first serves. So she came in and yeah. had to serve three times. Yeah. And made three first serves. I yeah, was yeah. like, that was like, that's why I put you in. You grand yeah. slam champion. You know, first round Sloan is different, but when yeah. it's in the final, she yeah. always shows she's her. money. She's, she's money, money and she's a badass. And she like, it's time to shine, the biggest, brightest yeah. lights. I just I feared her getting on that court. And I was like, holy crap. She's just she took over. Like yeah. the whole thing flipped right there. And um, yeah, and that it was, was great. I, I, magical. That was, that was just—I yeah. mean, that that last ten minutes of tennis was just magical. And, and everybody's like, so engaged, right? And I, and Luke, yeah. I mean, you like just screamed belief in your team because you could see them yeah. kind of like when Jack got mm -hmm. beat five zero by B nine. Oh, yeah. you could see the team kind of go down. Yeah, yeah. And then yeah. you just—I was like, that's why he's a good coach. Yeah, I was yeah. like, that's why he's on ESPN. That's why. He's <laughs> But just... you're doing the same thing. It's the, you know what I mean? If, if you don't do it, if, or if we don't do it as coaches, they're already down. They're feeling it. If we don't take on that responsibility and rev them up, you still may lose, but you got to go down swinging and just staying. We're going to have more fun than everybody else. Just keep going. And it just, that format is just so awesome. I wish college tennis would do it. 
I really, yeah. I wish it would be co-gender and do exactly the same thing, put it in basketball arenas and things, because you could get some serious traction as far as viewership and then attendance at those campuses, because that, that was unbelievable. That, that no ad scoring and stuff is just oh, man. amazing. Yeah. Well, man, I want to thank you, man. You're a legend. Uh, I love the energy that you bring to every facet of the game, whether it's commentating, whether it's clinics mm -hmm. at the charity events or with the kids or coaching is just amazing. I don't know where you find the energy, uh, but I want to just tell you that the world respects you. The tennis world respects you. Uh, and good luck with Coco, your new assignment. I can only imagine the F-bombs that are <laughs> dropped on your court uh, with her, you know, so hats off to you for dealing with Coco. <laughs> She's awesome. We have oh, so man. much fun. Yeah, we have we have a bunch of stuff coming up. NFL, so she follows her Chargers. You know, yeah. I follow my Detroit Lions. And so, I mean, 31 now, and she's she's been to all the dances. She's been on all the rides, and it's no BS. We go out there. She works her tail off first thing in the morning, put in two a days, and uh, we're just cutting out the clay court season. Not going to do the clay. I know. Go for the, go for the French. Go for the paycheck and go right to the grass, baby. Roger Federer style, baby. Roger Federer yeah. style. You That's know. right. That's right. <laughs> well, this has been the Tennis.com podcast with the land, the myth, the legend, Lou Jensen. Thank you for joining, brother. Thank you, buddy. Thank you.